0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Product Coalition podcast. I'm really excited today to be joined by Baron Ernst over in Amsterdam. Welcome Baron, great to have you on.
1: Thanks, really looking forward to it.
0: Today we're going to be talking about your 15 years of experience and product tips going from Silicon Valley to to Europe. So I'm really looking forward to working through um, some points there with you. Now, before we get started, for those listening, maybe for the first time, if you've just discovered the Product Coalition, welcome. We're a global product community with over 500,000 readers, 7,000 Slack members and thousands of podcast listeners. You can head to members.productcoalition.com to test what you've learned from every one of the podcast episodes and find out more about the Product Coalition. So, Baron, I'm looking forward to this session. 15 years of experience from Silicon Valley to Europe, um, and I know you've recently changed um, careers as, as well. So, I'm really yeah. sort of keen to cover as, as much as we can in the time we've got. Do you mind sharing with, with the audience? You know, what's what's been your journey so far in, in product, and um, and talk us through that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so I didn't come to product sort of by design, it was uh, the, the sort of role I, I stumbled into sort of out of college. I was graduating from, from UC Berkeley in the Bay Area and was looking at potential jobs and honestly was, was mostly considering going to law school and then decided I didn't really wanna do that and ended up applying for a bunch of jobs and ended up sort of randomly joining this rotational development program for sort of recent graduates at Intuit, which is a pretty large Silicon Valley company when I joined, had really no idea what product management was. All I knew was I was joining this fairly large successful tech company and I was going to spend two years figuring it out. In, in sort of the, the way that the program works is you do four six month rotations. And in my first rotation, got really lucky to take on a product management role, focusing on, this will sort of show how long ago this was, taking the QuickBooks desktop product and making it available uh, as an ASP service, meaning you know, a, a hosted login from the internet service, which was at the time this very innovative idea. <laughs> and even though that project overall ended up being kind of a bit of a failure, I got really excited about what, what was cool about product management, You know, designing an offering, thinking about how to ship it to customers, doing the research and seeing why customers needed the product. I really enjoyed working with engineers and it became this sort of, thing that I really, really enjoyed. I spent the rest of that time in the rotational program doing rotations in marketing and in another one in product and then another few in like marketing and strategy and quickly realized product was what I really enjoyed. So, so ended up sort of sticking with that. Um, And so spent most of my time at Intuit building a product that was called Quicken Online, which was a personal finance web-based product. It was one of the, one of the first web-based offerings that Intuit ever shipped. And we also built one of the first iPhone apps that the company ever, ever shipped as well. Um, And then, you know, sort of stuck it out, built that, built that product, and then ended up moving to IMVU after about four years and, and working on 3d virtual worlds for, for those who, Maybe haven't heard of IMVU. Most people have definitely heard of Lean Startup. IMVU is the company that Eric Ries co-founded and sort of wrote a lot of the Lean Startup principles at before he sort of went off and did Lean Startup and all of that stuff. And so for me, it was really cool because I went from Intuit, which is a very classical product management organization, very much focused on talking to customers, understanding their needs, to IMVU, which was this very, very fast, ship things quickly, MVPs, you know, build, measure, learn type of type of environment. And so I got to sort of merge the very deep customer knowledge with a lot of speed, a lot of knowledge, a lot of web-based product management principles, and a lot of data. And so it was a nice kind of one-two punch to start my, my career at, in product. And after that, I worked at and sort of co-founded a, a startup with a few friends. The startup was called Rewarder. It was a two-sided marketplace connecting people who had questions with people who could help them out effectively and got a lot of the, I guess, early stage experience of fundraising, of building a small team, trying to figure it out. I always say that, you know, we are the, we, we had the experience that I think 95 to 99% of startups have. We, we raised money and we went out of business and we did everything we could to try to achieve product market fit. We couldn't solve it, but at the same time, it was so much intense learning for two years that, you know, I think was incredibly valuable long-term in my career. Uh, after that, I spent sort of a year and a half running growth for One King's Lane, which for those of your listeners who were maybe in Europe, would have, it's kind of the equivalent of West Wing in the United States. Uh, that was eventually acquired by Bed Bath & Beyond. And then I moved uh, to Europe to work at NASPERS, which is a fairly large multinational investment company that was originally based out of South Africa but that now is best known for owning 30% of Tencent, for running a lot of the largest classified sites uh, and being an investor in a lot of the largest food delivery companies in the world. I, I joined there initially as sort of a product, senior product expert consultant, senior director to jump from portfolio company to portfolio company and help them think through product and growth strategy. And then eventually ended up as the chief product officer for one of the portfolio companies called Showmax, which was the streaming video Uh, company that they had built focused on Africa and also on Central and Eastern Europe and so built sort of that product and that product team um, from scratch which was great did that for nearly four years and was at NASPERS overall for right around four years and then spent the last year at booking.com as a director of product focusing on ski and beach and I've just recently joined Zenly which is a social network that is all about connecting you and your closest friends based on where you are on a map, understanding kind of what you're up to with your closest friends, and then having really exciting interactions between yourselves. We are a social network that is very much focused on keeping it small, keeping it local, keeping it amongst you and your close friends and family, um, not selling data, not sharing data, basically doing it in a way where, even though we are asking for lots of permissions, we, we keep those permissions such that the user is always in control, the user can share their location and their information with who they want. And we're trying to build, I'd say, a differentiated type of social network from some of the big players that are out there. Ours is not about broadcasting to thousands or hundreds, it's about sharing cr- critical context with you and your friends. We are part of, of Snapchat, so Snapchat acquired Zenly about three years ago, but we're being run largely independently as as its own sort of standalone product, which has been quite fun. I've been doing that for about three months. And kind of along the way, it's been product management across a lot of verticals, a lot of companies, a lot of roles for basically the last 15 years.
0: Awesome, awesome. Um, so much in that um yeah I'm, I'm so looking forward to this session what, what was it, quite interesting where you just finished up um over at booking.com and headed over to zenly that, that to me sounds a little bit like the into to imvu going from somewhere big yes. um to somewhere small and um I'm, I'm really keen to know like it's been your first you said three three months so like first 12 weeks what what have you had to Go back to that you weren't doing at Booking.com that you've had to recall um, while we while it's still sort of fresh to you.
1: That's uh, a great question, and I, I would say the there are a lot of parallels in in a number of senses. So if I think back to my Intuit experience, what I really loved about kind of Quicken Online when I was early on there was. We were running in many ways as sort of a a small kind of company uh, or a small startup type of organization inside of the larger Intuit Intuit company, right? What was great about that was we were a small team. There weren't a lot of established best practices within the organization for how you built a web-based product. For a lot of the team and a lot of the engineers, it was their first time transitioning from honestly running like desktop code where they had been formerly Quicken engineers to writing web-based code. And so because of that, we were sort of this ragtag group of like, let's just figure out how we're going to solve it. And then I think what happened in large part when I left into it was the product was shipped. It had sort of been adopted into this larger organization. And a lot of the sort of the big company processes had started to kick in. And at that point in my career, I was sort of like, you know, this isn't what I want to do quite yet. I'm more interested in being in the early stage and building and shipping and then learning about what it's like to get an offering out to users. And I think I've, you know, obviously different levels. At that time, I was more of an IC. This has been more from one leadership role to another. But I think a lot of those emotions carried over, which is booking is a wonderful company. And, you know, I actually really appreciate my time and really enjoyed it. But I think what I really fundamentally missed from my experiences at kind of earlier stage companies, and even at Showmax, was building the early team, building the team culture getting a lot of things shipped um, rapidly and getting those learnings very quickly. And, and I think at at booking, you know, it's just a very mature company decisions by, by their nature. Like, you know, you have to make sure you get the right people bought in on, on key decisions that you're making. And, and I think it was just, you know, kind of going from, from that environment back to, to Zenly where everything is we move very quickly. We deploy very rapidly. New features are coming out. They're, Uh, very transparently with you there, you know, I'm one of the kind of early product leaders to come in before I was here. Our CEO Antoine had been largely the head of product and he continues to be the product visionary for the organization. So it's a really, you know, unique experience for me because what I really love doing is coming in and helping facilitate building the product team, building the product culture, building the product organization in a way that it, you know, enhances the company and in a way that it aligns with the culture of that company. And so that, that's been really quite fun. Um, you know, I, I'd actually say I'm working quite a few more hours, but really enjoying the fact that I'm working quite a few more hours because um, I, I feel like I'm kicking my learning curve back in quite a lot. And, and that's what I really always look for when, when I look for new roles.
0: Nice, nice. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing. I know no, no problem. Some big differences of context of an organization that changes the way you think and act. Um, so it's, it's great to hear how you had to flip that. Um, so, so let's jump into, you know, the world of product um, today in 2020. What are some of the common mistakes you're seeing in product organizations and product teams that's going on right now?
1: So... So the, the the thing that's that's been really interesting for me is, I I almost feel like in, you know, so there's like two big problems that I still see. One that has been around forever is feature creep, which is I still see lots of organizations and lots of companies that assume that if we just bolt on the next thing or find the next you know rocket ship, it's going to change how our product is perceived or how it's working. And then the other one that I see that's a lot newer is this sort of trend toward over optimizing and assuming that everything can be solved through an ab test through coming up with some new thing that you can easily place on a page and then test your way to success. And I think what a lot of a lot of companies I think have forgotten about is it's really critical still to spend time like talking to understanding who your customer is and forming hypotheses around them for why you're going to build a product. And and I and I think you know it's super easy especially when you join a lot of these more modern companies and it's a lot easier now than I think it was 10, 15 years ago to just like dive into the data using amplitude, using Tableau, using all of these different resources and then kind of forget what the data says about the user, forget, you know, who the customer is at the end of the day and then forget also kind of what problem you're solving and to just focus on like, did I increase optimization? Did I increase conversion or did I not? Um, And, and, and I think, you know, that, works well when you're at scale, when you have enough traffic, when, you know, you can, you have something that's already working, but it's not enough of a strategy to run as a, as a product organization long-term product organization needs to balance a combination of how do we make some big longer term innovative bets. And then when we start to have those bets start to pay off or when we find a feature that's doing incredibly well, how do we then start to optimize that feature to squeeze the most potential growth out of it? But what I often see is organizations are often really good at one of them or the other, but they don't do a good job of combining both. And the best product teams uh, do basically what, what I think of as like an investment portfolio approach, right? You should have some things, maybe 20 or 30% that are high, high return, but low potential of payoff. And some percentage of things, maybe 60 or 70%, where they're smaller bets, you have a lot of chance that they're going to work. But if you're only doing one or the other, you're not maximizing your chance for success as a product organization. And then secondarily, if you're not talking to your users, especially for those bigger longer term bets, you're not going to be able to form good hypotheses about all sorts of bets. You're not going to understand what really motivates them and drives them to use your product. And And last of all, it's easy then, I think, to make decisions that might end up generating a lot of usage, but then also hurting your users in a negative way, not to call out some of the other social networks, but I do think that that is where a lot of that behavior comes from is it, you know, if you're optimizing for things like time on site, time spent on app, time spent on these other things, you sometimes forget what is the psychological toll that someone is paying? What is the price that someone is paying? And I always say that if you come back to talking to the customer at the end of the day, it's always hard to forget those things because knowing who the user is and knowing what they care about really does matter when we as product managers are making critical decisions about what to build and how to build a
0: product. Awesome. Awesome. Some of those, um, moral and ethical, um, points, uh, to be honest, yeah. I've, I've never spoken so often about them than the year 2020 with, with guests and the community. It's, it's certainly bubbling to the surface now. Um, and it's, it, it, started last year when I first started recording the podcast, I think third or fourth episode it was around ethics in product and um, how to think about zen in, in, in how you prioritise features and measure success and um, I think there there is there's hopefully more thought going into um, how do we change the world, not just yeah. how to change the needle or move the needle um, on a metric. Um, that's great. So okay, what, what I'm taking away from that is for, for product managers to look at look at their backlog, look at their opportunity backlog, think about the features and think how many of those are your big long-term bets, how many of them are your small, short-term, more likely to pay off, bets less investment and consider how well-balanced that is when, when looking at that backlog.
1: And, and, and in addition, for each one of those things, can the product manager, can the product leader, articulate the hypothesis behind why they think the feature matters. Like what does it, what does it accomplish? What do they expect the outcome to be? If, if, if someone is just saying this is a cool idea, let's build it, but they can't relate back to how does it relate back to the product primitive of what we're trying to do as a team, what we're trying to do as a company, or they can't even give like a clear hypothesis for we expect it to do this because we know this about our customer then you should start to question: Is this something we should even build? That's that's the other piece of that that I think is really important. So it's both thinking about it from an, a portfolio approach, but then also asking yourself the question. And this is especially, I think, true even earlier in your in a journey of a of a team. You know, do I do I know why I'm building this? I've seen a lot of times where someone's like, I'm going to change colors. I'm going to move this button here. I'm going to do these things, and you ask them the question, well, why? And they're like, well, I saw Google does it. I saw Facebook does it. And it's like, that's not a good enough reason. You're not them. You're early in your stage. You need to actually think through why you're making changes and what investments you're making.
0: Nice. Nice. Um, So I'm I'm taking away um, respect some of the design thinking, some of the empathy building with customers um, and understand their world. um, Not just the, move fast and test fast um, approach, but balance it with some, some depth there. Um, can, can I ask on, on a similar point to that, um, s- sometimes when speaking to product managers on this type of topic, they, they will talk about how the strategy doesn't clearly show at company level um, the direction they should go in with, with some of that more meaningful change in the world. What's your thoughts on how product people should try and influence strategy and push up, not just consume down
1: from from the company level. So so to me, to me here, here's, you know, let me give you kind of a quick framework for how I think about strategy and it it differs a lot company to company. So Zenly, Zenly is fairly unique. Zenly is largely a product company because we are shipping an app and that is our, that is our main kind of output. So in our case, the, the product, strategy is the company strategy in in many ways you know if we if 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 I'm not aligned with what anton wants to achieve from a business perspective we have some fairly large problems thankfully that's not the case but but you know in that in that scenario i think what it comes down to largely is having a good alignment between product leadership product team and then kind of ceo and overall ceo vision and and the where i've seen that break down usually is a misalignment around expectations. So it's what I've usually seen in that situation is not that there's not a shared vision on what the the company should do, but usually there's a, there's a mismatch of shared vision of like what's actually possible and, and what's prioritized. So, you know, a lot of times I see it where the CEO has like the long list of all of the things that he or she would love to get built and the product team or the product owner doesn't do a good job of communicating back to them. Look, I know you want these 15 things, I can give you five, let's sit down together and pick which five we're going to do. And let's redo that exercise quarter by quarter to make sure that the things we are focusing on align most closely with the overall strategy. That that approach I think is true everywhere, but especially critical within the context of a very product focused organization. When you expand it out to say, you know, a company like Booking or a, a company where it's, it's a product that then leads to an in-person experience or that leads to something getting shipped. There are definitely going to be elements of that that are outside of the control of product in some ways. When I worked at One King's Lane, we, of course, didn't own the process of picking the furniture, of picking what was going to be on sale every day, of figuring out the supply chain of how things got shipped. But what we could have impact on was giving them the data around, you know, these, these ceramic pots or these uh, we have these like flameless candles do incredibly well whenever we feature them in our emails versus these ottomans that you know a few people buy but they're not as important and so from that perspective the way i think product can really influence the overall strategy is by sort of having that feedback loop of giving that data back to the people making those critical decisions and then also feeding that data back up into the executive level so that we're providing that context and that, and that feedback kind of back to them. Um, and then the last piece I would say is usually the product people are the people who spend the most time with customers. And so, you know, if, if in talking to customers, you're getting data that your company strategy or that the overall approach doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense. I think it's really on the product team to sort of bring that to light, to, to highlight that for the, for the executive team, maybe to also look for kind of additional sources of that data from support from other areas to try to build that case for, hey, we're actually taking the wrong approach here because this is what we're actually hearing from users. And this is the impact we're actually seeing when we do these changes. Um, so there's a few, those are a few ways that I've, I've kind of thought about it. And right. yeah, I, I, I don't know if you also specifically meant on the point of ethics. On the point of ethics, I think it's similar, which is mm. talking to customers, bringing back the ethical approach to to the leadership team, helping the leadership team understand sort of usage patterns that you're seeing on the product side, and also the impact that your product is having for customers when you talk with them directly. Because what I've seen leadership respond to is leadership responds to stories, they respond to, you know, ethical dilemmas, they respond to needing to do the right thing. And they also respond to risks that may happen if negative stories get out in the media. And so I think, the product team can help sort of identify those things early and then also help to fix them by talking with users and talking with leadership as well
0: awesome awesome thank you we spoke about um, making different bets um earlier and um to, to break down a couple of approaches you could call some of the bigger future bets innovation and some of the small incremental change optimization yeah it, it, you mentioned some percentages, I think, of how you, you sort of split them down, just general rule of thumb. I appreciate it. It's very generalised. But um, what, conversion optimization can be quite often the easy one to, yeah. to continuously improve, um, particularly nowadays with the tools we, we've, we've got. Um, but the innovation can be hard to balance. So um, h- how do you weave that into sort of planning a year ahead? Um, When it comes to road mapping and how you're going to spend time in that innovation space
1: so a lot of it so i gave some very high level you know we'll call them guess guess percentages it 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 varies really widely based on company stage right um a company that's pre-product market fit is probably a hundred percent in the innovation phase so so I just want to kind of clarify that, yeah. um, you know, please to all of your listeners, don't use my rules as, <laughs> as, as what you should do. You need to actually kind of base it on, on what's happening in, in your business. Um, I did a matrix about this, which I'm happy to share with you and you can share it with your listeners yeah, as well. Um, but but the, the rough way that I think about it from a year out planning is if, if you're in an organization, so I'm gonna make a few assumptions. Let's assume you're in an organization that has product market fit. You have maybe three or four teams that are focused on some key areas of the business. So in that, in that scenario, let's pretend you have a a growth team, a team that's kind of focused on the core feature experience, uh, a team that is maybe focused on, you know, some future bet that you're wanting to make and a team that is, and a team that is doing something else. Uh, You, you kind of break it down. I'd say team by team. And so in the case of each team on the growth team, for example, they are likely to be the team that is the most focused on optimizing and on thinking through how to improve core parts of the existing user flow or the existing user experience. And so for them, where I would spend the most time focusing is really on probably putting a large percentage of their bets into that optimization funnel, meaning that they might be as a team focused very much on incrementally growing something like an invite flow, an onboarding flow, and those types of things. And the majority of those tasks are going to sort of weigh against, like we call it maybe like an 80-20 optimization versus innovation. For the teams focused on like core functionality, you could use Showmax as an example. We had teams that were very much focused on, you know, better AI ML, better introduction of new content to users, more quickly getting a user from viewing different um, types of streaming video to then actually viewing it, and then also how quickly the video streamed and all those kinds of things. In many cases, those tend to be more innovative bets because they're the types of pieces of functionality where you need to spend a lot more time during the build phase. And a lot of them are things that are inherently not as easy to just run as an A-B test or as an optimization. They're they're things that require longer term investments and they're things that in theory should improve the user experience over the long run, but that you, know, you may not have the opportunity to validate with a minimum viable type of, of offering. And so in those cases, the, the balance tends to shift a bit to maybe 70% innovation, 30% optimization. Um, and so when I'm planning a year out, what I'm usually looking at is a few things. One, what phase is the company at, at now? Two, what where do I want to be sort of a year from now? You know, so if I'm if I'm here now, in a year from now I want to grow the user base by X percentage. And I also want to introduce say, you know, features or verticals around these particular areas, that's usually then how I start to place the bets. If the goal in the next year is just really like a, an optimized focus on growth, probably there's going to be a lot of teams focused on optimizing key flows. And then a few teams focused on building some new features that will enable that growth. Um, but on the flip side, to my point earlier, if you're in a very product market fit phase, you may be 100% focused on innovation because your goal a year from now is to be at product market fit. And in that case, what you should really be focused on is talking to customers, innovating and building that initial product to get to that product market fit. And then you can start the process of optimization.
0: Right, okay, thank yeah. you. That's brilliant, that's brilliant uh, breakdown. Thanks so much. <laughs> no worries. Uh, so, Baron, 15 years in the game, I'm sure you've, you must have mastered the art of uh, setting delivery and timeframe expectations. yeah you know
1: you you think you you think you you think you've gotten good at it and then you always learn that there's a new there's a new thing that gets in your way right
0: yeah Yeah, there's nothing like a global pandemic to throw out a roadmap Um, (laughs) yeah exactly um so so do you mind telling me you know how do you go about setting expectations and aligning ability to deliver within certain time frames what does the conversation look like from you when chatting to the rest of the organization
1: so I I I talked about this a little bit earlier, which is I think that creating a prioritization framework is something too few companies do. And and for me it's always it's always interesting because I you know I've joined a lot of companies and I always join and assume I'm like, oh well they'll have a framework for how they prioritize work. Um, and it and it's shocking the amount of times that it, it hasn't been the case. And and so for me. The thing that really enables companies to hit timeframes and to to get things done within a deadline is is just good sort of project management in a sense. I've I've been saying for a long time, um, if a product manager needs a project manager to run their own team, they're not doing their job very well. And what I mean by that is it's not to say that I don't believe that project management is an important role, but it's an important role at aligning people across a variety of organizations. But each individual product manager should be able to really prioritize within their own team and also hold that team accountable to deadlines and to, to getting things shipped. But at a higher level, what I, what I think gets missed a lot is just what's the overall prioritization framework for, for the company. Um, a few simple ways that I've usually done this is, you know, at a leadership level, what, what I've usually done as like a chief product officer is I try to get my whole team to sort of write a quarterly focus for what each one of them wants to achieve, what work they want, they and their engineering counterparts and design counterparts are gonna commit to during the sort of three months, and then what things are below the line that didn't make the cut when they did some initial T-shirt sizing or estimation. And and if you do that kind of across the team where each one of your product owners has a clear set of KPIs or OKRs, whatever you wanna use, and kind of a clear set of resources that will be available to them for the quarter. Most teams I think get in a rhythm where they're roughly able to estimate what they, what they think they can accomplish and attempt to, and try to commit to it. Um, And then I sort of use that as a, as a way to, to elevate that overall sort of set of priorities and roadmap to the leadership team to say, here's what at a high level product and engineering is committing to part of that's There's a, Uh, nuance that's really important. It has to be product and engineering and hopefully design. If it's product committing to something and then engineering saying, we don't believe it, it's never going to work. So it needs to be a joint effort um, and most preferably a three-way effort with, with product and design and engineering. And, and then the intent is when you have the sort of quarterly check-in with the leadership team, the goal of it is to say, what's the company goal for the quarter? How does that ladder to what we wanted to get to in a year And are we taking on the right tasks within this given quarter team by team that we feel good about it leading to that outcome? And if not, the expectation of the leadership team is not to say, well, add six things to the list. It's to say, okay, well, what is not on the list or what is below the line that we need to move above the line? What are the trade-offs that we need to start to make? Um, What I try not to do, though, is set an expectation that you can just add Things because once you do that, you usually set yourself up uh, for failure longer term. So, so that's how I sort of think about a prioritization framework, and that's also how teams get good at hitting deadlines. Is teams get, you know, they 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 write these things out, they commit to them, kind of in word and on paper. They get buy-in from the leadership team, and they also that also creates an expectation that the leadership team is not going to be changing things around all the time, and therefore the team should have the freedom and the leeway to actually hit deadlines. Um, the last and super tactical bit is, you know, when you're, uh, when you're two to three months away from a big project getting shipped, this sounds like basic advice, but the amount of times it gets screwed up is amazing to me. Have a burn down meeting like every week for a half an hour and review what's critical and what's left to get done. And, you know, I always say like much better to identify a risk three months before a project ships than one month before you can take action three months in advance. You cannot take action one week, one month, two weeks in advance. By that time, it's like you're stuck with the issue. You either are going to slip the date or you're going to remove the, or you're going to have to de-scope. And so to me, you know, early planning always makes things go out much more effectively and more on time.
0: Nice. Nice. What I love about this advice is, um, In my experience, all of that is just as relevant for the CPO as it is for the junior product manager. Um,
1: I, I completely. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, you know, you learn and you do things at the junior levels, and you're like, well, I'm sure these will not be as relevant later. And it turns out most of what it is is it's just, you know, it's it's scaling and bigger versions of it. But it's very similarly relevant as you grow in your product function, in your product's title, and in your overall responsibility entirely. Mm -hmm
0: yeah right and, it,
1: and at the end of the day it's expectation setting and and you know showing that what you promise you can actually deliver at time over over time
0: the other bit i'd, I'd add into um, what you was talking about there with regards to the quarter um that uh earlier on in my career was was always an afterthought or not thought about early enough when you talk about planning is what's going to happen when it's shipped and what are you doing in the quarter before yeah. To inform the customer success team, product marketing, uh, and aligning and preparing for launch, not the sprint that you've realized it's going to go, you're going to be able to push the button on it, but actually exactly. at the start of the quarter when OKR okay, planning or KPI planning, et cetera. And um, don't forget about actually turning it on and all of the success needed around that to, to make it happen.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, part of the Part of the goal of that burn down meeting is that it should not just be you and the engineering team, it should be you, the engineering team, and then other key stakeholders. Uh, you should have care involved, QA involved, marketing involved, so that everyone has a sense for what their expectations are. And then also their activities should be tracked as well. It shouldn't just be what is engineering doing and how are they doing and what's product doing and how are they doing? It should also be care. Are you feeling good about your preparation for this launch marketing? Are your marketing plans ready to go? What's green, what's yellow, what's red, where do you need help? And it's also, what's nice about that is as a product person, you grow your skills from just product to also being more general management type of capabilities in that context. So you start to think not just about what's the product launch, but about what's the product launch and what are the implications for other parts of the business of the organization and and then you also start to get a deeper understanding of what's required for marketing what's required for support and um, and then you know as people grow in their career those are skills you can take with you as you grow as well
0: nice nice awesome i've really enjoyed chatting Aaron. this has been an awesome session thank you so much
1: no no problem jay really happy to do it
0: absolute pleasure um please take care of yourself in in amsterdam good luck with the move i know you're heading to to france soon as well you mentioned earlier so um all the best for that
1: Thank you so much and uh, really appreciate it. And have a, have a great day.
0: Cheers, mate. For those listening in, hope you've enjoyed that episode um, with myself and Baron. I certainly have. If you want to um, hear more podcasts from the Product Coalition, um, you can look up Product Coalition in your favorite podcast player, or you can head over to members.productcoalition.com to find out all about the Product Coalition as an online community, including what we do for some of the lowest. Um, Lowest economies in, in the world and trying to bring product people into uh into the space there. For now, that's all from me. Thanks very much.